is writing this letter, he's writing it to Timothy. And I really believe that this next verse is the theme of this letter. Um, It says, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. The Lord will bless the reading of his word again this morning. Let's just open in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. We're thankful for uh, the opportunity to allow you to speak to us this morning. And uh, we are just thankful for the voice of God. Um, And we're just so thankful for the relationship that we can have with you, dear Father, because of what your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, did there at the cross. And so we uh, ask your blessing now on our time as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And so you, we were just informed here in just these couple verses that the apostle, right, um, delivered these instructions in the form of a letter and not in person because he thought he might de- be delayed in coming to Ephesus. Remember, this is, Timothy's been left in Ephesus and uh, Paul is now writing to Timothy and uh, he feels that he's got to write these things down, um, but he is planning on coming um, to help Timothy kind of put things back in order. But I just love this is that it's a good reminder to us is that there could be no delay in addressing the Ephesian problem. And so Paul says explicitly that this letter was given to show Timothy and others how we ought to behave in the household of God. Okay, for this is the church of the living God. And so everything we've looked at in these first few chapters, everything we're going to look at afterwards as well, Paul says, hey, listen, this is so important. I'm going to write this down just in case I'm delayed in coming to see you. Timothy, these are the things that are important and how we are to behave in church, how we behave in the house of God. And so what is the local church, right? Like for some, I think the church is a social network, right? A place to meet like-minded people. For others, church is a place to raise your children. For others, it's a place for social justice, helping the poor, the trafficked, the unborn. Right? How we view something affects how we treat it, right? And so I think it's important here, these verses, these verses show us how God views the local church. This is how God views church. And we all need to be reminded of what the local church is. And here in these verses, I think Paul gives us three pictures of the church as far as how God views the local church. And the first one, the first thought is going to be that of family, that of family. And so it says here, I write these things in verse 15, so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. The word house there in the Greek, it can refer to a building. However, most likely, this is metaphorical language for a family or a household. In fact, some of your Bibles probably have that translated. Instead of house, it'll say household of God. In fact, it's been been used in this whole chapter already. right? In verse 4, it says, he who rules his own house. Well, it's not talking about the building. okay? It's talking about his family. right? We read it in verse 5 as well, right? that if a man does not know how to rule his own house, How will he take care of the church of God? And then later on with the qualifications of deacons, 
Let the deacons be husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. So again, when it talks about the house of God, I think most likely this is a metaphorical language for a household or for a family. In fact, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He says this, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. You see, the church is God's family. It's God's family. Okay? It's full of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. In fact, the Lord Jesus said this when he was on earth. He answered and said to one who had told him, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples. And he said, Here is my mother. Here are my brothers. He says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, they are my brother and sister and mother. In fact, even though Christ is our God, he is called our brother. It says there, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that his son should be the firstborn among many brothers. That's right. And you can say sisters there too. Brothers and sisters. Okay? That's in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Okay, in fact, in 1 Timothy, amongst a lot of his epistles, it's one of Paul's favorite words. Brethren. Brothers. Therefore, the reality that the church is God's family or the household of God should affect how we treat each other. No? It should. In fact, I want to just, uh, if I can, describe a few things. If we look at the church as the household of God or the family of God, these are things that are necessary in a household. These are things that are absolutely critical for having a family. And every one of us, if you don't have a family, you're part of a family. So all of us can understand what it means when we talk about the things that a family needs. Well, the first one is this. A family must be fed. You all experienced that this past weekend. Okay? Right? But it's important to know this, that the only diet right, that will nourish the people of God is the Word of God. The Bible says that the Word of God is our milk. It's our um, bread. It's our meat. It's our honey. Right? Listen, this is important. A church does not grow by addition, but by nutrition. That's how a church grows. But not only it must be fed, right? The family of God, the, the house of God needs discipline in love. Every family experiences discipline in love, right? Children who are not disciplined become rebels. They become tyrants. Some children, they need rebuke sometimes, don't they? Listen, Hebrews talks about this, but do not despise the discipline of the Lord. It's part of being in a family. Okay? It's part of being the house of God. It's necessary. Okay? Don't be discouraged when you're rebuked by God. Don't be discouraged. It's part of family life. And, I, and God uses the spiritual leaders. Notice how I said spiritual leaders. I didn't say elders. I didn't say... Okay? Those who are 
spiritual God uses them, right? To exercise discipline. Hey, don't despise it when a spiritual brother or a spiritual sister comes up to you and has to give you a rebuke, right? It's healthy for the family. We don't want all of us to grow up to be tyrants or rebels. But not only does the the house of God need to be fed, not only does it need discipline and love, but it needs encouragement, right? An example. Each of us, right, need to encourage each other, need to set an example for each other. And this is a big one here, right? If we are the family of God, the house of God, we need to show familial love. In fact, if you look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, we won't go into this because I don't want to take someone else's part, but Paul actually advises Timothy to treat the members of a local church as he would the members of his own family. He even gives some examples, right? It says here in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. So even Paul is giving Timothy the same idea here. As, hey, listen, in the house of God, we've got to treat each other as if we're family, just as you would in your family. And so the question is, are you showing familial love to the members of your church? Are you showing familial love? Now, this also implies openly sharing problems and hardships it means bearing the burdens of others it means working hard to reconcile when conflicts arise right it means always seeking the best for others as one would for a mother a father a brother sister son daughter in fact it is a good practice to refer to each other with familiar familial terms it was common in the new testament Right? We read here, we already know that Paul refers to Timothy always as his what? His son. That's right. His son in the faith. He calls the congregation whom he's writing to his brothers. And that's why sometimes, for those of you that are not accustomed to that, that's why you hear us a lot of times saying, hey, brother, hey, sister. Because that's what they did in the New Testament. It reminds us, too, that we are the house of God the household of God, a family. But in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it's the only time that this love is used. Many of us are are familiar with the different kinds of love, agape and phileo and so on, but there's one kind of love here, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. And that's that same one. It's called storgy, but it's a familial love, right? It says, in honor, giving preference to one another. You see, God is love, And that love works through man, especially through the whole community of Christians. Right? You read this in Philemon. Right? You remember Paul writes to Philemon. Philemon owned this slave called Onesimus. Onesimus ran away from his owner. He then meets Paul. He gets saved. And through talking, hey, Paul says, hey, you got to go back to Philemon. But he writes to Philemon. And he says, hey, listen, that slave whom you once had, Okay, I want you to know that he's been a benefit to me. He's trusted Christ as his Savior, and I want you to love him now as if he's your brother. I wonder how Philemon took that. <laughs> maybe he had no problems with it all, but maybe it was a challenge. I don't know. 
But Paul is saying, he's like, listen, now he is a brother in the Lord. Love him as family. As family. See, this storgy, this familial love is different because it's a non-discriminatory love. I think I've shared this before, right? But I did not choose my brother, James. Okay? But I love him. And I love him differently than I love a lot of you in here because he's my brother. But I didn't have any choice in the matter, did I? No. And it's the same with all of you. You don't have a choice. You have to love me. Okay? Yeah. And you have to love the person sitting next to you. And not just love them like, oh, yeah, I love them. No, like, a, like you would love a brother or a sister. It's a different kind of love, isn't it? And, and along these lines is this, is that we need to prioritize each other. Okay? A house of God, a family of God has to prioritize each other. In fact, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those, what? Of the household of faith. Same idea here. The house of God, the family of God, especially to them. They get priority. You see, here in this text, Paul's calling for believers to prioritize the body of Christ over others. You see, in a natural family, right, the members feel a responsibility to participate in family gatherings, such as dinners or outings or vacations, right? I've had to do this every year for I don't know how many years now. Thanksgiving, I have to go to my mom and dad's. I don't understand that. I keep, you know, teasing my mom every year and my wife saying, why don't we just start our own tradition? But no, we have to go to mom and dad's because they're my parents, right? And so for many of you, you probably had to do the same thing, right? There are certain obligations you have because it's your natural family, right? Paul is saying, hey, listen, that's how you treat your church too. That's what he's saying. Many times we have it backwards, don't we? We know exactly what that means. We prioritize our natural family. I have to go to my parents for Thanksgiving. Yet when it comes to things with the church, we don't prioritize it. It's not a priority. It should be true in our church family as well. Right? If our church family is gathering for Sunday worship, a midweek care group or Bible study, if they're meeting for prayer, a retreat, a mission trip, then the members should feel a responsibility to be involved. You should feel that way. It's your church family. Church must be our priority. And so, of course, the question is simple. Is the church and its family your priority? Is it a priority? And see, this priority is particularly revealed when there are opportunities to serve. Right? Paul says that we should do good to all, but especially to the family of believers. Is there a need? Right? Is someone struggling physically or emotionally or financially, right? Let us take that burden as we would with our natural family. Any one of us, if we saw a need with our family, natural family, right, we would feel obligated to meet that need. Paul says, hey, it's the same with your church family. And the last thing as far as this house of God, the family of God is this. This is important, is that we actually grow closer as a family, as we know God more. 
1 John chapter 1, verse 3 says this, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, the apostles, they taught their experience with Christ so that others might have fellowship with them and God. Okay, the implication of this is that the more we know God, right, the more we can have genuine fellowship with one another. See, the apostles, they actually experienced Christ. They were with him. They, they talked to him. They held him, right? And they took that and they were able to teach others about Christ and they say, hey, listen, we want to teach you this so that we can have fellowship together. Well, listen, if you're not experiencing God, if you're not experiencing Christ, then how are you going to be able to teach us, right? And we're able to have that fellowship with each other. You see, our fellowship increases as we increase in our knowledge of God, what we learn of Christ. You see, the closer we get to God, the closer we get to one another. And consequently, the more fellowship than we have with the body of Christ. Therefore, if we're growing in Christ, knowing him and his word more, we will naturally grow in fellowship with one another. And this is why, though, right? I think this is one of the reasons why so many in the church never really get involved. It's because they're not growing spiritually. I think a true a one indication of someone who is growing spiritually, knowing God more, is they're involved. They're involved. Knowing God naturally leads to knowing and being intimate with his family. I don't know how to stress that. I hope I'm getting that across is that there are so many people today say, Well, I love God, but I hate God's family. I don't know. How is that possible? Well, I'll never go to church again. Because they upset me. Well, that's, but that's God's family. Like, my son was actually reminding me that it was pretty cool is that he was saying, hey, listen, Dad, if someone wanted to say, hey, John, we really want to get to know you, but we don't want to hang out with Amy. I'll be like, well, guess what? We ain't hanging out. That's my family. That's my wife. But that's what we do sometimes. We say, God, I want to hang out with you, but not your family. And God's like, no, no, that's my family. Do you see what I'm trying to say? It's important. We've heard this lots of times, right? Essentially, our horizontal relationships reflect our vertical relationships. But our vertical relationships also reflect our horizontal relationships, right? If we're in discord with others, you can be sure that you're in discord with God. Don't be mistaken. If you are upset at a brother and sister and you're holding resentment towards them, you are doing it with God too. That's his family, if someone had a problem with my wife and was like, then you got a problem with me. That's how it naturally happens, right? And Christ said, if we don't forgive one another, God will not forgive us. If we forgive others, it says God will forgive us. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. And so what do your relationships with others say about your relationship with God? Are you growing in fellowship with God and therefore in fellowship with others? This is an important principle, right? Not just for friendships, marriages, right? And church relationships. The more we know, right, God, the more fellowship we will have with one another. I'll try to illustrate to you this way. There was an American missionary. He was in Papua New Guinea, and he asked a the native there what was the um, best route 
to get from one place to another. And so the native, with a puzzled look on his face, replied, well, there are all kinds of roots, my friend. He continued, and he says, well, we could go into the bush and visit some friends along the way. He says, or we could take the coastal route. He said, the sun will be strong, but an old man lives over there, and he knows many stories from World War II. He says, if we take the road, he says, we can actually talk to some of the members of my wife's family who live on this side of the river. The missionary was getting frustrated, right, with all this, thinking he just doesn't get it. I want the best route. And then it hit him. You see, the American idea of best was the most efficient, easiest way to get there. The Papua New Guinea idea of best was determined on which relationships you wanted to build. Hmm. Do we do that sometimes right in life, right? We are completely neglecting our church family because we're looking at the most efficient, easiest way to get to whatever we're going to. Right? Whatever is easiest for us, whatever is most efficient, right? Instead of, listen, maybe our purpose in life should be the best route is that which builds relationships. Doesn't matter if it's hard. It certainly won't be easy, right? It may not even be the most efficient. It's going to take some time, right? But the idea of that's the best route is by building relationships. And so we need to modify our perspective of the local church, right? We're just not a collection of individuals who happen to meet at the same spot every week for worship and instruction, okay? We are to become the house of God, the family of God, which implies relationships, relationships. But not only that, Paul says this. Verse 15, he says, that you may ought to know how to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Now, the first one I said had the idea of family. This one has the idea of assembly. Assembly. The word church is a translation of the Greek word ekklesia, which means assembly. Okay? It was a non-religious word for a group of people called together for a purpose. Right? The verb tense of this word means to call out of. It was used in pagan Greek to designate a meeting of a citizens of a town called by the town officials to an assembly. Okay? This is what Paul's saying. That Listen, not only is the church the house of God or household or family, but it's also an assembly. An assembly. And so I don't know how, what your ideas of our assembly. I'm a school teacher. So when I think of assembly, I think of one thing, right? Any of you that has ever been a student or anybody that works in a school system, right? It, let's say it's a, a day where um, at, at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, the principal says, hey, listen, all of you are going to be called out of your classrooms, and you're going to have to come to the gymnasium or to the auditorium, and we have someone coming from who knows where, this zoo, and they're going to show you a whole bunch of animals and... and uh, as the kids, they love it because they realize that they've been called out of having to do any work. And for teachers, we love it because we've been called out having to teach. And we all get to sit in the gymnasium and the auditorium for the rest of the day and watch this person show us animals. And you know what it's called? It's called an assembly. We love assemblies. Okay? Love when there's an assembly. But maybe you have another idea of an assembly too. But that's all it is. An assembly is people who are called out, right, 
to a meeting for a special purpose. For a special purpose. And so the local church is therefore an assembly of God's called out people. There are many different kinds of assemblies, right? But this Paul makes specific. He goes, but the assembly of the church is the assembly of the living God. That's important. Okay? Because it's God's assembly, he has the right to tell us how it should be governed. The church, right, has been purchased by the blood of God's Son. And so he doesn't simply say the church of God, but rather the church of the living God. Right? That is, the church is the place where the living God actually dwells, where he's at work. Okay? Just as the phrase house of God, right, focuses on our relationship with one another, this phrase here that Paul uses, the church of the living God, focuses our relationship on him. Okay? Our relationship with God. Living God was a commonly used phrase in the Old Testament that emphasized the difference between the pagan religions and Judaism. Right? What does David say about a Goliath, right? He says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he defies the armies of the living God? Over and over in the Old Testament, you hear them use that word, living God, living God. Okay? To contrast. Right? The Jews worshipped the living God, while the other nations, they worshipped dead idols. And this was certainly true in the context of what we're reading here. In Timothy's time, in Ephesus, right? The, the pagans in Ephesus, they worshipped the goddess Diana. And so it's interesting, right, that as Paul is writing this to Timothy, in Ephesus, right, there's this tiny congregation that is worshiping the living God, while everyone else in that town is worshiping dead idols. And so Paul here emphasizes to Timothy, hey, listen, right? This is not just the church of God. This is the church of the living God. The living God. And so the fact that we are an assembly of the living God should remind us of three things. And so again, I know everybody always asks about these things, semantics and things like that. They're like, well, what is it? Why do we always say we're an assembly? There you go. This is the reason. Okay? We try to the best we can use the terms that were used in the New Testament. That's why a lot of times you hear the the church that we're part of is, oh, the assembly or the brethren. It's just terms that we're using in the New Testament. It's no, uh, you know. But anyhow, so, but the fact that we're an assembly, we're called out, Right? To the, uh, to the living God should remind us of three things, okay? Number one, God meets with the church in a special way when believers gather together. Don't miss that, okay? In Matthew chapter 18, we're all familiar with this. It says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Don't miss the awe of that, okay? The wonder of that. Okay? There are people who say all the time, well, I, I can go to church, John. I can just meet in my house and have church. No, you can't actually. No, there's a place that God has set up where we come together in his name and Jesus promises that I will be right there in the middle of them. And yes, we know that God is with us, right? We have the spirit of God that dwells in us, but this is a special kind of presence that God promises when we gather together in his name. 
It's different. Corporate gathering together is different than you individually being with God. And that's a wonderful thing too. Okay? God will never leave you nor forsake you, right? Tremendous truth that God is with you. But he also promises to be in our midst when we gather together in his son's name. And so when the church gathers together, God meets with them. Do you understand that? God is meeting with us right now. That's amazing to me. Right? John Stott said this. Maybe you can try, he can explain a little better. He says, when the members of the congregation are scattered during most of the week, it is difficult to remain aware of this reality. Okay? But when we come together as the church of the living God, every aspect of our common life is enriched by the knowledge of his presence in our midst. And here's give some examples. In our worship, we bow down before the living God. Through the reading and exposition of his word, we hear his voice addressing us. We meet him at his table when he makes himself known to us through the breaking of bread. In our fellowship, we love each other as he has loved us. And our witness becomes bolder and more urgent. He writes this, Indeed, unbelievers coming in may confess God is really among them. Man. That's what it should be like. When we come together, God meets with us. But not only that, knowing that we are an assembly of the living God also should remind us of our calling to be holy. To be holy. It's interesting to consider the applications of God dwelling among Israel in the Old Testament, right? God dwelt among them as well, right? And because God dwelt dwelt among them, they were constantly reminded to be holy. And so one example I'll use today, which I love, I always wanted to use this in a message, okay? Is God actually reminds them to be holy in how they use the bathroom. He does. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, Verses 12 to 14, listen to what God says. He says, you, have, you are to have a place outside the camp to serve as your latrine. You must have a spade um, among your other equipment. When you relieve yourself outside, you must dig a hole with the spade and then turn and cover your excrement. For the Lord your God walks about in the middle of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies for you. Now you might think to yourself, what in the world? Why would God even include this? And so maybe part of you are like, oh, you know what? Actually, that's pretty healthy, right? You don't want anybody going to the bathroom in the camp, so that's good. Have it outside the camp. That'll keep you away from bacteria and diseases and things like that. But notice what God says here is the reason, okay? He says this, therefore your camp should be holy, so that he does not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. Hmm. I hope you see the application there. Right? If we are an assembly of the living God, God doesn't want to be here and see stuff that's not clean. Right? He doesn't want to see things that are indecent in our lives. And so if we're going to be those who are the church of the living God, those who are called out together here, that we have to be holy. Doesn't mean that we're not going to sin. Right? But those things in our lives that 
are filthy and defiled and dirty, we've got to confess those things. We've got to forsake those things. This idea in Deuteronomy here, right, is no different for us, right? right? Just as God moved about Israel's camp in the Old Testament, He moves among us as we gather to worship. We must remember that we are God's temple. That we are the assembly of the living God who is among us. And so therefore we need to get rid of sin and everything that might dishonor Him. Take a look at 2 Corinthians, please. You can keep your finger there in 1 Timothy. But 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This helps kind of illustrate this a little more, this, this idea of reminding us of our calling to be holy. And beginning in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, listen to this, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. <clears throat> That's what God wants from us. Okay? If he's going to dwell in us and amongst us, he's like, hey, listen, get rid of the stuff that's filthy. It can't be in my presence. Okay? So the question is, is there discord in our relationships? Let us seek unity. Is there bitterness in our hearts? Let us repent and give thanks. Our God is among us in worship. Our God is a holy God. <coughs> Excuse me. We must be holy and reverent because He is holy. And then one more thing that reminds me of this idea of we're an assembly of the living God. Um, it reminds us of our need to constantly meet together for corporate worship. We're all familiar with Hebrews chapter 10. It says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. If God is really among us, how much more should we seek to gather together, especially as the day of his return approaches. Right? We should not neglect the assembly, but constantly gather together to spur one another towards love and good deeds. There was one day several years ago, the, the phone rang in the rector's office of the church in Washington, D.C., where the president sometimes attended. An eager voice on the phone said, Do you expect the president to be there Sunday. The rector replied, that I cannot promise, but we do expect God. 
He goes, and we fancy it will be incentive enough for a reasonably large attendance. Yeah, right? That's how it should be for us. We should expect that when you come here, we will meet God. God is here every time we get together. We are the church or the assembly of the living God. Those who have forgotten this show up to worship without a sense of reverence or they neglect it altogether. They have forgotten their calling. God called you out of this world so you could meet with him in a special way in a public gathering. Don't forget how important it is. And lastly, he describes this church as the pillar and ground of the truth. So I said the first one was kind of an idea of a family. The second one is an assembly. This one is like a gallery. Okay, I was reminded of gallery. Look at this. And this is an architectural image, right? That would mean much to Timothy, right? Again, Timothy is in Ephesus. And here is Paul talking about pillars. What's what's the significance of that? Well, we all know that the, the great temple of Diana actually had 127 pillars. 127 pillars right there in Ephesus. Okay? And so this word pillar, right? Um, the, this, the pillar aspect of the church's ministry relates to displaying the truth of God, right? So when you think of the statues that were in Ephesus, many of them were placed on a pillar, okay? Um, so that everyone could see it. And so there is that aspect here. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says this. He says, we must hold forth the word of life so that the world can see it. Right? See, the local church puts Jesus on display in the lives of faithful believers. In one way, that's how the church is a pillar. Right? It displays Jesus Christ, who is truth. But the pillar also had another um, use, right? And the pillar also supports the statue, right? So the, the church is not primarily to be seen, but to support or lift up and publish the truth so that all can see and know. In fact, the word is that the idea of a prop, a prop. So if you ever used a prop before, right? A prop is usually to keep something up, Right? And so that's what the church does, right? We are to prop the truth in such a way so we support it, right? We're able to allow it to stand up. And so we are to call to hold forth the truth in a day when people don't want the truth, okay? Right? We're living in a day when people are content to follow the lies of the enemy. And so it's important for us to understand this idea of pillar as not only one that um, displays the truth of God, but also supports the truth of God. But not only is it a pillar, it says it's the, the ground, right? It's the, it's the pillar and ground of truth. This word ground, um, more of like a foundation or a bulwark, right? Um, and so this is the idea of the church protects the truth, right? Make sure that it doesn't fall. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 14, it says, truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 4 here, you can look just right over there at verse 1, Paul says that the local churches were going to turn away from the truth. They were going to turn away from it. And so that's why it's important that, that Timothy knows, hey, Timothy, listen, the church is the bulwark of the, of the truth, right? We are the ones who are going to protect it, not let it fall. And so how can the church hold forth the truth so that the world can see it? So that the truth is protected, right? So that the local church doesn't turn away from it. Just four things quickly. We need to believe God's truth. And now this should not, doesn't need to be said, but sadly it does, right? Many Christians don't believe the Bible anymore. Right? You hear what I just said? Many Christians don't believe the Bible anymore. Right? They, they don't believe about what it teaches about creation, salvation, men and women's roles, eternity, right? We are raising a generation of Christians that don't believe the Bible. Of those who do believe the Bible, many of them pick and choose what they believe. Paul says this, every scripture is inspired by God. Every scripture. You can't pick and choose what you want. If the church is going to be the pillar and foundation of the truth, we must believe every word of scripture and not just some of it every word of it but not only do we need to believe god's truth we need to study god's truth if we don't diligently study scripture instead of upholding truth we will uphold live by and possibly teach false doctrine it's possible if you're not studying the word of god you will perhaps uphold something that's not true <coughs> and therefore won't be approved by god <coughs> excuse me not only do we need to believe god's truth and study god's truth but we need to live god's truth live it out right it must move from communication to meditation and then to application the word must freely flow from our lips but also be evident in our lives Deuteronomy 30, verse 14 says this, but the word is very near you. <coughs> it is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. You see, sadly, many people are pushed away from God. They're pushed away from the church. They're pushed away from the truth, right? Because so many Christians do not practice what they preach. It's hypocritical. They hear the church saying this, saying this, but they see your lives and they're like, that doesn't match up. Right? It's sad. So we have to live it as well. And the last thing is we need to teach God's truth. Right? Each one of us is called to make disciples right, by teaching them everything Christ commanded, which includes all of the scripture. Right? When Christians cease to teach the word of God because it's unpopular, right? because people don't want to hear it, or because of the fear of consequences, right? They fail to be pillars and foundations of truth. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Christ is the truth that the church must teach. Must. <clears throat> and then, of course, we get into this 
portion here, right? And we're not going to go there for time's sake. I apologize. But as I said, a good application is that we are to study and teach truth. This is a perfect one right here, okay? This is a tremendous uh, teaching on the person and work of Jesus Christ, which I think Paul includes here because that's the most important thing, right? Uh, as far as church truth goes, you better get the person and work of Jesus Christ down and get it right. But it's also, too, if you ever look at this, this is actually most likely the um, six little stanzas of a hymn that uh, Paul would have been familiar with at that time uh, that they would sing. But, um, like I said, for time's sake, we can't, we can't go into that. But um, please look at that and study that regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, um, like I said, this portion here, right, is the historical truth that the church must never lose, Right? and proclaim it all. Christ, the Son of God, was a real historical person. He was empowered by the Spirit from birth. He lived a perfect life, died for the sins of the world, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I wanted to close with just this illustration here. I thought uh, it was powerful for me in my life, was this. There was a great composer. His name was Giacomo Puccini. I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but it sounded good like that, right? Um... And it says that his operas number among the world's favorites. And he was stricken with cancer in 1922. But he was determined to write a final opera called the Turandot, okay, which some considered his best. His students implored him to rest, save your strength. But he persisted, remarking this at one point. He says, if I do not finish my music, my students will finish it. And so in 1924... Two years later, Puccini was taken to Brussels to be operated on. He died there two days after his surgery. But his students, they did finish his final work. In 1926, which is now four years from the time he started, the gala premiere was held in Milan under the baton of Puccini's favorite student, Arturo Toscanini. All went brilliantly that evening until... They came to the point in the score where the master had been forced to put down his pen. Toschini, his face, his face wet with tears, stopped the production, put down his baton, turned to the audience, and cried out, Thus far the master wrote, but he died. After a few moments, his face now wreathed in a smile. Toschini picked up his baton and cried out again, but his disciples finished his work. Listen, church, our master died. He was raised from the dead, ascended to the Father, leaving us the most important task in the world, to finish his work. Okay, to proclaim his great salvation among the nations. And to do it, each one of us must commit ourselves to a living relationship with the living God. We must commit ourselves to one another as members of God's household. We must commit ourselves to know, live by, and defend God's word of truth. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thankful for the tremendous um, important task that you have given us to finish your work here on earth. And so we're thankful as your church, the tremendous privilege that is ours to proclaim your great salvation. And uh, 
Lord God, we just uh, we pray that you would help us to um, um, commit to um, loving each other as we would as a family, as God's household. Uh, Lord God, that we would uh, understand what a tremendous privilege it is to be called out um, to a special gathering like this, a public meeting where you promised to meet with us. And uh, we're also thankful uh, and understand the tremendous uh, responsibility there is is to knowing and to living by and defending uh, the truth of your precious word. And so we've asked for your help in these things. Uh, thank you again for this tremendous uh, privilege that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.